0: This is Stenna. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity In Me podcast, or In Me for short. This is the second part of my conversation with Rafi Dersimonian. This episode begins where the last one ended, with a definition of cultural clubs and affinity groups. For my audience, an affinity group is a group that um, invites people of a shared background together, and it's for that particular group only. A cultural club allows students or people from other groups to uh, attend meetings and participate in events.
1: You know, it's interesting even hearing that definition, the delineation between the two, Senna. because I actually hadn't even made that uh, that connection. I would say definitely more of a, a cultural organization in the sense that we very much welcomed anyone to come to any of the events you know in fact in many instances we relied on the community uh participation and not just the same group of armenians on campus but i would say it served a, the function of an affinity group in the sense that it provided us uh, a way to connect about something that meant a lot to each of us individually um like i'm sure you see with so many different people that you bring in uh, to this podcast that represent different cultures, but there is a lot of Armenian pride that, um, and I think part of that comes down to uh, the history that we've endured as a people. Sure. So by virtue of um, all the difficulties and trials and, and tribulations that we've endured, there is a sense of resilience that has emerged from that. Um, and I should mention for your, your listeners out there, I'm wearing my kiss me on Armenian shirt as uh, as testimony to that. But um, yeah, I I would say that it was a a cultural organization, but it served uh, the function of an affinity group.
0: You know, as you talk about that Armenian pride, every time you even say Armenian, you smile. (laughs) Seriously, It's just like prideful. I'm thinking about my own experience at Clark and participation in um, the Black Student Union. Um, I had a very difficult decision on my hands when I got to Clark Uh, because there was the Caribbean African Student Association and the Black Student Union. And it wasn't clear to me that I could participate in both. And so I chose the Black Student Union. And it was a very big moment for me because growing up, I always identified myself as Haitian, which is part of the Caribbean. And by the time I got to college, I had this recognition that when I'm walking down the street and people look at me, It's not like I have a flag on my back or something stamped to my forehead that tells them I'm Haitian. They see a black man. And so I thought it was most appropriate for me to uh, participate in the Black Student Union. And at that point in my life, I had learned a lot about the African-American struggle in this country and was really moved by it and felt like I owed it to the people before me to continue to um, educate others about issues that were ongoing and and things from the past. So anyway, I joined the Black Student Union. Um, I was part of that group for four years and it meant a lot to me to be in community with other Black students. And back then, we didn't have the language that we do now around a lot of this stuff. So um, nobody was talking about the Black Student Union as an affinity group or a cultural club. Um, We were just a club and every now and then um, a a white person would come in and nobody was like, hey, there's the door. You need to get out of here. But there were only a handful of white students who came through because by virtue of our name, you know, people were like, I don't belong there. And I remember always having conversations with people saying, if you want to learn about our experience, you could come through and and, and learn like you're not excluded. And it's like, well, when I look in the room and I only see black people, I don't feel as though I belong. And I'm like, well, that's interesting because when I look into classrooms here every day, I only see white people. So I could make that assumption that I don't belong in many of these classes. But, you know, I'm not going to say that, though. You know, I was one of three percent of black students at Clark. When you're going to class every day or going to the dining hall, um, there's an experience that comes with being one of 3%. So I'm in class and somebody says something like wild, and it would happen regularly. And I'm like, damn, I got to deal with this right now. So I can't like verbally accost somebody in class. I can, but it's not going to go well. It's probably not going to go in my favor. So I got to eat that. Or I got to tactfully like educate you. And then you go back to the dorm or I go back to the dorm and I gotta deal with some other comment that somebody makes. And what the Black Student Union offered for me and other Black students was an opportunity to be in community with each other and not deal with those instances where you have to educate somebody or figure out how to tactfully tell somebody that's not cool um, and be around people who got it, who understood and who would listen to you share something and be like, "Yep." Yup. Yup. As opposed to, well, are you sure it's not this? And that there's a certain element of um, delegitimizing an experience when you're asking several questions to make sure that the person isn't exactly experiencing that. So for me, you know, getting through Clark University, being part of a group like the Black Student Union was really important. This offers us an opportunity to talk a little bit about some of the issues that you're encountering. Helping, I think, the uh, the public school system where you are deal with the need for affinity groups that's coming up.
1: Yeah, Portland is really interesting in the sense that, first of all, it's Maine's largest city. Maine is one of the nation's uh, most homogenous states.
0: No, yeah. come on. Really? I'm just messing in. New Hampshire is 96% white, I believe. So yes, continue, please.
1: Yeah. You know, but, but Portland is kind of this unique outlier from any other community in the state. Um, Portland is the most linguistically diverse school system north of Boston. In fact, there are, I want to say, 65 languages spoken within Portland public schools. Wow. So think about that. A community of 65,000 people is nothing short of remarkable. Um, the current administration at Portland Public Schools is really embracing this notion of uh, equity and diversity and inclusion in a way that um, I think is, is rare for the state. And it's been so interesting to see uh, some of these some of the actions and some of the investments um, and uh, overtures that are being made towards trying to uh, address some of these issues that exist. And there are so many issues that exist, as you might imagine, that come with that. Uh, you know, just to, to be very specific, there was an issue recently where there was some, uh, the Portland Public Schools put together some summer programming, some affinity group summer programming. Um, specifically with the objective of creating a place for people to come and get to know themselves and, and to uh, really just kind of um, enjoy and experience their culture without having to, you know, think twice about what they're saying or, you know, measure measure their words and to be around people that truly get who you are. And when this uh, opportunity was published, there was a backlash of negative sentiment from certain folks in the community that uh, qualified it as being um, its own form of being exclusionary or uh, being discriminatory. Yeah. So, part of our work is helping to articulate all of the positive outcomes and the reasons why. There's, you know, research that supports the fact that affinity groups create a much healthier social, emotional environment for these students where they feel more connected. And it's not at the expense of being, you know, a part of the larger school community. But ultimately, I think that uh, in celebrating and identifying one's own culture, uh, it creates stronger individuals and stronger individuals create stronger communities. And, and like I said, that's that's where, you know, the best communities in the world, in my humble opinion, are a rich tapestry of different cultures, beliefs, ways of thinking, art, music, etc.
0: I think a common misnomer about affinity groups is that people of a shared identity, in this case, we're talking about race, and uh, my experience was in the Black Student Union. So there may have been this assumption from those who weren't participating in the Black Student Union that we got together to badmouth white people and to maybe even talk about how to subvert Clark University and turn it into this world for just, you know, black students. Like there's something nefarious happening here. You know, all these black students coming together and I I kid you not, it was more about hearing about each other's experiences and laughing and and understanding the, the jokes without explanation. And this doesn't mean that black students by virtue of being black are all the same. It just so happened that a lot of us came from the inner city as well. Some frustration for me that comes up when um, all this pushback comes up against affinity groups because I think most of the people who push back on it have never—they've never needed that sort of support to get through a particular experience. And the last thing I will say is, I think there's a big difference between segregation uh, and being in an affinity group. So when we talk about segregation. You're talking about communities where people separate themselves intentionally. And not only do they separate themselves intentionally, resources are built up in one particular community, usually the white community, which allows school systems to be far better than those in communities of color. And so segregation creates far different outcomes than an affinity group ever could. I I wish there was a little bit more understanding and, and empathy around the experience that underrepresented groups have in predominantly white spaces, heck, you know, predominantly heterosexual spaces. I get why queer students need to be in community with each other from time to time, because all they see is the normalization of heterosexual relations, I get it.
1: You know, it's, I think you nailed it on the head, Stenna, that, you know, the people that are criticizing uh, affinity groups are the exact people that will never be able to fully understand the value of them. And you know, hearing you say that about the the Black Student Association getting together and and not bashing whites, obviously that goes without saying. But I think it's it's one of those things where um, it's certain people. I think they they hold uh, they feel like there's something um, insidious going on behind it and. It's, it's a shame because, you know, I truly believe that these affinity groups are going to ultimately play a really important role in these students' lives. And, you know, that's part of what we're trying to do, to educate the whole student um, in providing opportunities to connect with other like-minded individuals, whether it's, um, you know, sexual orientation or uh, cultural background. It's such an important part of getting to know yourself.
0: You mentioned research in there. Have you found that people on the other side of the ideological coin are moved by research from scholars, from the elite? In my own experience, I haven't found that research does that. So I'm curious to know how people respond to it when you bring it up. And I have an additional point to make. I think proximity is everything, man. So I often ask my white friends, have you ever been in a community with another group of people that you don't identify with at all, whether it's Black, Latino, Asian, have you ever gone for a day into a part of any city Mm -hmm. and and beyond a day, actually, have you ever spent a lot of time where you were the only white person? And how did that feel? Most of them say, no, I've never had that experience. I'm like, oh, wow, that must be nice, right? Now, if you did do that, if you went into a community for a few days and had that experience, I promise you, you would leave and say, I get it.
1: You know, it's it's interesting because growing up in such a homogenous community, the truth is, is that I have n- never spent an extended period of time as a minority. I do remember one moment uh, my dad was uh, teaching a class at University of Rochester. And we went to the Rochester Music Festival and uh, I, it was, um, uh, Montel Jordan. Mm. And I remember this feeling where I looked around and I realized that we were the only white family at this event. And, and again, I think this comes down to the fact that I grew up in a bicultural household, but I remember at that very moment being like, Oh shit, this is cool. You know, like, this is like, this is, I realized what was happening. I was aware in that moment. Um, but, you know, even I've lived in major cities in, in, you know, Portland, as diverse as it is, is still very homogenous, I would say, yeah. overall. Um, it, it has a homogenous feel to it, comparatively speaking to other cities, you know, Boston, Worcester, New York, even Providence, probably. But yeah, it's, it's so interesting to think about that. You know, um, I couldn't imagine being in the 3% of Clark and how that must have felt
0: And to the other part of my question regarding research, have you found that research compels people to change behavior?
1: No, and and it's interesting that you mentioned that. You know, I think the people on the other side of the ideological spectrum, as you put it, you know, we like to cite research because it provides some some rationale and validity and legitimacy to what we're saying. It's my belief, Stenna, that the only true anecdote to shifting perspective is conversation and it kind of goes back to what you're saying about proximity right because if you're living in a homogenous community you never get a chance to have that proximity and that dialogue then you're far less likely to identify and um, you know have a a broader understanding of what it's like to be in someone else's shoes but I think that at the end of the day as humans uh, there's We're filled with far more good than anything else. And I think that with constructive dialogue and and conversation, I think that's where real, it's the only place real understanding can emerge.
0: You know, you have a guitar in your background. And as you were talking, um, I was thinking about a song that we both appreciate the old school. And I was thinking of Marvin Gaye and What's Going On. And, and I'd ask Pretty you to the chord to that, uh, but no, we're not going to do that. Uh, yeah, it's uh, the end of one of the verses. He goes, talk to me so you can see what's going on. Talk to me, brother. Talk to me, sister. Talk to me. All right. So I had this experience with a colleague here, much props to him. A white man walks into the Office of Multicultural Affairs and He comes in, what's my name? What's his name? We we exchange pleasantries and then he gets into like, well, so tell me about the Office of Multicultural Affairs and what you do, and I explain it to him. And so that led to additional conversations. He said, let's have lunch sometime. Yo, word. Okay, so you wanna understand a little bit more. So we've had lunch several times. And in one of those conversations, he said, we should have a beer. And in my head, I said, I'm gonna use this as an opportunity for education. I said, where would you like to have a beer? And he was like, oh, there's this bar in town that I go to, um, real cool place. Uh, You'll love it. I said, yeah? He was like, yeah. I said, "Um, how do you know I'm going to have a good experience there? And he paused. And he's like, I I didn't think about that. And I said, I mean, it might be the case that I go in there and everything's cool. But um, can you assure that I'm going to go to this bar and somebody's not going to say something sideways? you know what, Hadley, I can't. I said, so I would love to have a beer with you. And I have identified a couple of places in town that I'm comfortable having a beer. And so it would be helpful for you to find out where I would be comfortable because for the most part here, you're going to be comfortable when you go out. And he's like, this is a lesson for me. I said, yeah, that's equity, man. That's equity. Figuring out what works for me because I might go into a space and have a bad experience. And all you can do is apologize. Yeah.
1: Did you feel like he, he, he heard you though?
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. He and I have had many good conversations. I have dropped some things on him that he continued to think about. And I'm not going to sit here and say I've transformed the man. He's given me some things to think about. I don't have all the answers. I just know what I've experienced in my own skin. Um, but uh, I appreciate the fact that he extended an olive branch for us to have a conversation. And as a matter of fact, um, I have a group that I co-facilitate with a colleague here. I co-founded it with her. It's called real talk, where we bring colleagues intentionally of different backgrounds to talk about identity. Um, And those conversations have been so productive and people have developed relationships. And you know what, when people develop relationships, there's more of a desire to listen and understand and learn more. And um, we're going on our third year running this group. And it's one of the favorite parts of my job.
1: Stan, I love that. I love that. Uh, it's so awesome that you're in a position where you get to use all of your experiences and background to affect real change. I mean, the fact that you're leading conversations like that, that would never otherwise uh, transpire is that's powerful stuff, man. And, you know, I will also just add that I appreciate the opportunity to have things flagged to me. If not, it's so easy to go about living your day-to-day life in your own limited belief system. Um, but again, that's where the good stuff happens. And that's, you know, I am personally I'm an extrovert. I love interacting with people. I love getting to know people's stories and what makes them tick. And so much of that is informed by uh cultural identity. So I think a big part of it in addition to you know the conversation piece is listening and and being open to um, hearing things and being open to called out for things that maybe, um, you know, you need to be thinking about a little bit differently. I think that's where, that's where growth can occur.
0: And that's a great segue to a conclusion. That's why I have this podcast. There's a reason I have people from a variety of backgrounds on the podcast to share their experiences. Um, I want people out there to listen to these conversations intently and reflect hence the conclusion of every episode is keep reflecting. And I mean that. Rafi, thank you, man. Such a pleasure.
1: And I just want to say thank you so much for the opportunity to connect with you, it's, uh This has been a lot of fun. And let's keep the conversation going, mate.
0: Yes, please. Let's connect sometime. Um, and if you're performing, I see the guitar behind you. That's part <laughs> of your identity. You're a musician. If yes. you're performing, um, especially if you're like, uh, performing some Motown somewhere. I don't know if you do that. You let me know. I'm there.
1: Well, I got to I gotta now dust off some Marvin Gaye now that you planted that seed, so. All
0: right, cool. <laughs> Affinity groups and cultural clubs both serve important functions in a school or organization. I don't think one is more important than the other, but I believe both entities are needed in a given setting as they both serve critical ends. I also want to expand on my thought about affinity groups, specifically the reservations people have about them. Affinity groups are a valuable resource to underrepresented students. As I explained in the episode, they provide participants an opportunity to be in community with students who may share similar challenges. They also have a shared identity. These groups offer an opportunity for familiarity, even for just an hour, which can feel revitalizing. Trust me, I know this firsthand. It's important to note that all underrepresented students aren't clamoring for these spaces. However, if students are asking for them, rather than say no, figure out how to support them better. Better yet, get an understanding for why they're asking for these spaces and commit to resolve some of these issues instead of simply saying no. Ultimately, who benefits when the group doesn't come into being? The students who are asking or the people who don't need it? Until the next episode of In Me, keep reflecting I tend to tea and me I tend and